0: So this is a class of um, kind of trying to help equip people in dealing with their oikos. When you're out and about, you got these, these cards that Pastor John's always talking about. And it's like, okay, I got it filled out. Now what do I do? How do I engage these people? How do I talk to these people? That's sort of what this class is about. And so we're, we're on week two of uh, some critical questions or big questions that many unbelievers in our oikos might be asking, and might even be some people who call themselves Christians, but but uh, issues of common concern and confusion. And so last week we looked at uh, the question of why are there so many different kinds of churches? Why are the, why do we drive around Glendora and there's umpteen different kinds of denominations? And who are all these people? And how are they related to us? So. That was the discussion we had last week. Today we're talking about, how can there be only one way to God? Have you ever been in that awkward conversation? Can one religion really have all the answers? So this is kind of the question that I would like us to consider today. I wanna differentiate um, between two concepts today. The first concept we're gonna call social pluralism. The idea of diversity and pluralism is something that is part of our cultural fabric. And I think that there's aspects of diversity and pluralism that are actually helpful and useful. But the problem is, is that it kind of all becomes blended together. And so this is um, a little way of differentiating between different kinds of diversity. And so maybe you'll find this a little bit helpful. The first concept is social pluralism, is what I'm calling this. And this is where we can have appreciation for certain... Uh, diversity. When people come from different cultures, you guys, do you ever just really appreciate learning about a different culture? It's interesting to find out how people do things. And it's interesting to find out how people think. And if we're going to go be a missionary in a different context, it can be very important to understand uh, other cultures' history and and their ways of being. Uh, There's racial diversity. I mean, really, when you think about it, all the races come from Adam and Eve and um, should all be valued equally. Racial diversity is, is, isn't something to be divided over. It's, it's really just um, physical traits and f- different skin colors. It's, it's not something that is something we ought to divide over, but rather it's a point that we can appreciate about how God has made us differently. There's, there's ethnic diversity, religious diversity. And when we think about religious diversity, how many of you have ever seen this bumper sticker yeah. Yeah. floating around town? And you think like, okay, is that good? Am I supposed to be offended by that as a Christian? Like, how do I think about this coexist bumper sticker? And I think it depends on how you think a little bit about this question of diversity. I think many people in our culture Uh, think about it in two ways. Part of it is social pluralism and part of it is religious pluralism. But I think that there's an aspect of coexist that's actually something that we as Christians can get behind. And that is the concept of the First Amendment. That the government shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof or abridging the freedom of speech, or of the press, or of the right of the people to peaceably assemble and to petition the government for redress of grievances. And so we want to protect the First Amendment. That's a value, and that's where we can coexist together, right? We want to allow space in our society that is a distinctly American value that different religions can exist side by side. And I can drive out here in Glendora, and I might see a mosque, I might see an LDS church, I might see a a number of different churches, and we believe as the fabric of being an American that those people have the right to peaceably assemble and worship according to their conscience, and so do we, right? And right now in Russia, there's a big controversy happening about the Jehovah's Witnesses. Whether or not they have the right to peaceably assemble for worship um, even though they are considered to be a cult. Now, in America, we allow cults to exist because it's part of the First Amendment. But So there's that aspect of coexist where we want to respect each other's rights in, to religiously affiliate in a way that makes sense to us. So this is what I'm call, calling social pluralism. So I think that actually Christians, this is, this is in the realm of my opinion, but I actually think Christians should protect the religious freedom of all people because we want our religious freedom to be protected. I mean, isn't that in a way part of the problem that happened during the Holocaust is that people said, well, Judaism is not the majority religion, so why should we protect that? So the First Amendment protects all faiths and people of no faith to have the freedom of speech and freedom of thought. Minority faiths are the ones who need the most protection. So when Christians allow the government to pick whose freedoms are recognized, we undermine, actually, the, potentially, we undermine our own religious liberty. Because what if at some point we are no longer the majority religion? Don't we want other people to advocate for us? And so when we advocate for others to peaceably assemble, we are in a way um, thinking ahead that at some point we might be the the minority religion. And so there's a big debate among Christians right now in Russia about this whole Jehovah's Witness question. Should we be defending the rights of Jehovah's Witnesses to peaceably assemble because they're a minority Religion. So that's a, a, a way that I could see coexist, and that bumper sticker is being something I could kind of get behind that. I want to coexist with other religions, I want them to coexist peacefully with me. And this is part of the problem what's happening for many Christians in the Middle East that have peacefully coexisted among other religions for thousands of years, but now have fallen on hard times. So, religious liberty for some may soon mean religious liberty for none. So we want to do what we can to try to protect the religious rights of other people. So that's one perspective. Now, another way of thinking about social pluralism is that there are people in our culture that are kind of religiously different than us, but could be social allies with us. Have you ever thought about this? Like, you know, uh, the LDS church was a great ally politically some years ago on the gay marriage debate when we were in California talking about, I believe, Prop 8. And the, and m- much of the funding and political advocacy came from evangelicals and the LDS church. Now we're not saying that we are believing the same things, but we happen to be social allies on this particular issue. And so where we find those social allies, I think that's another way that we can coexist with one another in a very positive way. Uh, Catholics are a wonderful um, ally on the issue uh, related to pro-life questions, aren't they? They take a very strong stand on pro-life things. Uh, Conservative Muslims uh, are, we are involved as a ministry, (laughs) this is an interesting alliance, we are involved with a conservative Muslim group in Turkey against the rise of atheism in Turkey. And so they think that what we're doing is interesting in incorporating science into our religion and, um, and using it to combat atheism. They have approached us about an alliance. So we send speakers to their conferences um, to talk about how uh, the Christian worldview is not compatible with atheism. We don't hide the fact that we're Christians. We're not downplaying our belief in Jesus. They know where we stand, but they they look at us as being a strategic social ally because they see atheism on the rise in their country. So sometimes you find alliances in interesting and unusual places. Uh, Churches from various denominations joining forces on social justice issues. This happens, is happening more and more. So we want to think about social allies. We want to think about religious allies. A Christian baker, the, the famous baker example, who does not want to provide a service on the basis of religious beliefs, should also want to protect the rights of Muslims to practice their religion in a reasonable way. That There's this, there's this long-held concept in American politics called having, uh, being a conscientious objector. And, and having an objection based on our conscience. And so we should um, want to be an advocate for that. We want to be an advocate for that for us, but we should also try to be an advocate for that for other religions too, because we want people to protect our rights. It's not just a Christian thing. Just a little scripture here is Matthew 7:12. So in everything you do to others, what you would have them do to you, for this sums up the law and the prophets. This is kind of where we get this concept is what we call the golden rule. We want to treat other religions the way that we want to be treated. Okay, so that's social pluralism. So I'm looking at it from a social and political and cultural point of view. Now let's talk about a second concept called religious pluralism, which is an entirely different matter altogether. And what I'm, hoping is that by separating these in kind of two different mental buckets you can begin to see that there's a good kind of pluralism that we can get behind to some degree and then there's this more troubling one that we're going to that's going to be a much tougher uh row to hoe so religious pluralism is this idea that all faiths lead to, the one, to one and the same God. Have you ever, are you familiar with this idea? Classic example of this, you might not remember this, but I did go back and I have a link there. Looking up the interfaith service that happened right after the 9-11 tragedy. I don't know if you remember this, so the national cathedral. And they had all these representatives from all these different religions. And in the, what we call the invocation or the opening prayer, The guy addresses, the the cleric addresses God as being the God of Abraham, the God of Muhammad, and the Father of Jesus Christ. So it's fairly inclusive, we might say. And this is very typical of how this is handled in those interfaith situations. We're going to play a quick clip here from uh, that great theologian, Oprah Winfrey. Um, Who is a uh, a really a a type of theologian that holds a lot of weight in our culture many people value and listen to and respect what she says i remember what i've been saying this whole year is theology is just having certain ideas and thoughts and teachings about god and so there is a very real sense in which oprah winfrey is one of the most popular theologians in our culture And so we're going to play that
1: clip. There's a wonderful book called Ishmael by Daniel Quinn, which talks, which which is, anyway, it's a gorilla talking, but anyway. (laughs) uh, It talks about one of the points it brings out is one of the mistakes that human beings make is believing that there is only one way to live and that we don't accept that there are diverse ways of being in the world that there are millions of ways to be a human being and and many ways no but many paths to what you call God and her path might be something else and when she gets there she might call it the light but her loving and her kindness and her generosity brings her. If it brings her to the same point that it brings you, it doesn't matter whether she called it God along the way or not. And I guess the danger that could be on that. I mean, it's, it sounds great on the onset, but if you really look at both sides, I there could be a possibly be just one way. What what about Jesus? What about Jesus? Even him up in the whole discussion, and you say there isn't only one way. There is one way and only one way, and that, that is through Jesus. Be. There couldn't possibly be with a job. There, the there, there couldn't possibly be. Because you say you intellectualize it and say there isn't. If no. you don't believe that, you're all buying into the lie. But that means you're right Do no you think you think that for for you, if you if you are somewhere <laughs> no on the planet is. Where you yes. Some, yes. if you're what somewhere a... on the planet and you never hear the name of Jesus, you never hear the name of Jesus, but yet you live with a loving heart, you lived as Jesus would have had you to live you lived for the same purpose that Jesus came to the planet to teach us all, but you are in some remote part of the earth and you never heard the name of Jesus. You cannot get to heaven, you think? And that is covered in the scriptures, too. The People heart. are talked about Truly. that. God knows the heart. Does God care about your heart or God care about if you call his son Jesus? Well, you know, Oprah, God, Jesus cannot come back until that gospel is preached in the four corners of this earth. So,
0: you don't figure it out.
1: Okay. Okay, I can't get into a religious argument with you. Not-
0: okay, so this is very typical of how this is argued in our culture, isn't it? I thought it was a nice little slice of life of, of how this is. Now, it's not, um, I think I would have, if I had been advocating the Christian position, I might have gone about that a little differently. I would have asked some different questions. But this is very typical, and I thought that the, the positions are presented nicely here. We have Oprah's position. There couldn't possibly be only one way to God. Well, Oprah, that's an assertion that has yet to be proven. Mm -hmm. You can't just throw that out there and assume that that's true. That's just an assertion. But um, then the other was that the way to the Father is through Jesus. So we're going to call this the traditional position, and we're going to call this the religious pluralism. Okay. So when we think about this question, this is how many people in our culture think about this, is that we have all these different religions up here, and up here is God. And you know, there's different paths. I find it fascinating that Buddhism is sort of this weird pretzel. But um, I don't know if that's intentional or symbolic. So we have all these different paths. But you're all climbing the same mountain, God's at the top, and we're all going to arrive at the same destination. So I'm going to make five points to look at this assertion from a a historical or traditional Christian position. And I'm hoping that these points will help clarify our position so that when you're in those conversations, you can uh, really begin to to talk to people um, and explain our position well. Okay, so the first one is that Jesus' claims exclude other religious claims. To me, this is the foundation of the whole thing, is people love Jesus in our culture. They think he's a wonderful moral teacher. They think that he might, some people think he might be a prophet. But my problem with that claim is that um, Jesus' claims themselves are highly exclusive and you have to deal with that. He's, he's not just an, a, you know, a superficial nice guy teaching. It, he's making very radical and exclusive claims. And we're just going to look at a few of them. John 8 says, I told you that you would die in your sins if you did not believe that I am. And then I added there the Messiah so you know what he's talking about. You will indeed die in your sins. If you don't believe Jesus is the Messiah... See, the, 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 the interesting thing about ideas is that ideas have consequences. Yes. And so when we align ourselves with an idea, we're not just aligning ourselves with some nebulous thought out in the space somewhere. It is something that has a consequence. And Jesus makes this very clear here, that if you don't believe in him as the Messiah, the consequence is that you are still in your sins. It's a very exclusive claim. Isn't it? Um, I am the way, the truth and the life. No one comes to the father, but through me. See, Jesus isn't just a way to heaven. Jesus is the way to the father. The way way is he's the way to the father. He's not just a golden ticket to heaven. He is he is the pathway. He is the door. He calls himself to heaven. He is the way he is the gate. And so if you wanna access the Father, you have to go through Jesus. Jesus makes this claim in Matthew 7, he says, enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many, for the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life and those who find it are few. In our culture, the cultural Jesus is, he's just all about love. And accepting, and then we redefine love as if it means Jesus never wants to change you. He doesn't call you to anything higher, to anything better. He's just right where you are, and that's it, and He's going to leave you there. <laughs> but that's not the Jesus of the Bible. He calls us into something, and He's calling us down to this hard path. And it, have you, I mean, faith is hard sometimes. Sometimes it's hard to believe. It's sometimes, it's, sometimes there's a part of me that just be so much easier. These answers to these people would be so much easier if this is really what the Bible taught. But it's not. There's this very difficult truth that if you want to get to the Father, you have to go through Jesus. And I always think, that's not my line. That's Jesus' line. And that's what's so difficult about it sometimes. He claims in Matthew 24, he says... Watch out that nobody deceives you, for many will come in my name, claiming I am the Messiah, and will deceive many. So there's even going to be false Jesuses out there calling us to believe in him. We have to differentiate between the true Jesus and counterfeit Jesuses. Then the apostles' claims about Jesus is that salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven by which mankind Must be saved. Well, this is a very powerful claim because the context is to the Jewish leaders and he's telling the Jewish leaders, you must come through Jesus. Peter is telling them. So it's not just a nebulous belief in a God. It's not even just a belief in the God of the Old Testament. It's an acknowledgement that the God of the Old Testament manifest through Jesus is the same God the same empowering person, and that that is the way to the Father. Later in the book of Acts, Paul says, in the past, and this is to the context here, is to people who have never heard of God. These are pagans who are worshiping idols. They're members, we might say, of another religion. So instead of telling them, well, your religion is sufficient, you know, just keep being devout. In your religion, and you'll get there eventually. He doesn't tell them that. He says, in the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people. I love how, how inclusive this is. All people, and just in case you don't know if you're in the set of all people, all people everywhere to repent. For now he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this, Notice that word proof. Yeah. He's given proof of this. What's the proof? Is the resurrection. This is the proof that Jesus is the judge. This is the proof that there's no more excuses and then he calls all men everywhere to have faith in Jesus. He doesn't tell them, well, just be devout, be sincere, try really hard, be loving, that's enough. He says, no. You need to come to faith in Jesus. Okay. Romans chapter 3 is another great one. He says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. See, if you want to get to redemption, what do you have to have? You have to have Jesus. They go together. So our first claim is that Jesus's claims are very exclusive. And it's, you know, loving people might not be enough. Number two, our second one is that core claims of major religions contradict each other. Have you ever noticed this? So in logic, we have this pesky little thing called the law of non-contradiction. I love the law of non-contradiction because it's so easy to understand. You know, something cannot be one thing and another thing at the same time in the same way. You know, so if I look at myself and Helena, I cannot be both Krista and Helena at the same time in the same way. I cannot be Krista and this water bottle at the same time and in the same way. These are this is the law of contradiction makes the world make sense. We are able to differentiate between our world because of the law of non-contradiction. Contradictory statements cannot be both true in the same sense at the same time. So the Denver Broncos are the NFL team. For Denver, Colorado, is not compatible with the Denver Broncos or the NFL team for Los Angeles, California. The Rams. <laughs> it cannot be both true in the same way and at the same time. Okay, So when we think about the claims of other religions, this is very easy. Claims about God, there is one and only one way to God, or there's only one and only one God, there are many gods, or everything is God. Well, they could all be wrong, couldn't they? One could be right, but they can't all be right at the same time and in the same way. This is just foundational logic. Just logic 101. Logic is like the most useful class I ever took in graduate school. I highly recommend every Christian take a lo- class in logic. In fact, I think it should actually be required before you sit on a jury that you, <laughs> you had a class in logic. <laughs> it's very ne- ne- necessary. For a balanced world. Claims about ultimate reality. God is a personal being. God is not a personal being, but he is an impersonal force. These are not compatible statements. Now, they both could be wrong. One could be right, but they both can't be right. Claims about Jesus. Jesus is God or Jesus is not God. Again, the law of non-contradiction. Different religions make different claims about Jesus. So if someone talks to me about Jesus, it's like, well, what Jesus are we talking about? Who, who is that Jesus? What do you understand Jesus to be? It's a very powerful question to ask someone in your oikos when they say, I believe in Jesus. You say, can you tell me about the Jesus that you believe? Because then that helps you begin to clarify. What are they believing? How much of it seems compatible with the Bible? How much of it is based on our culture or? Jesus was resurrected from the dead. Jesus did not rise from the dead. If you're a Muslim, you don't believe that there is a, that Jesus rose from the dead. Well, these are not compatible claims. Either he rose or he did not rise. Humanity's core problem. Humanity's core problem is sin. Or if you're in an Eastern religion, humanity's core problem is ignorance. See, the problem in Eastern religions with humans is that you just don't know your potential. You don't know that you are a God. You don't know all that you could do. Whereas Christianity says, you know what your problem is? Is that you're a sinner and you need a savior. And you can be in all the potential that you want, but you're still in your sins. See, these are fundamentally different claims. They're not compatible, even at the most root of the religion. Claims about the afterlife. I mean, this is just a few claims that I selected, but after death, we are resurrected to eternal life. That's the Christian position. After death, we are reincarnated into an endless cycle. These are fundamentally different claims about the afterlife, okay? So when you dig a little deeper into this this claim that all religions are, are true, it's like, well, wait a minute. When we start looking beyond the surface, it's like, okay, maybe it's true that you know, the golden rule, that seems to be like pretty universal. Treat others as you want to be treated. Not a problem. But when you start talking about who is God, what is ultimate reality, what is our major problem, what happens to us after we die, then we're, we're in a totally different set of contradictions with each other. They cannot all be true. So I have this, this acquaintance... He, you're, this is his rebuttal to the coexist sticker. Is he's got the contradict sticker <laughs> that they cannot all be true. And he he, he sent me a few. I, I like this because when we're talking about religious pluralism, you know this is this is a this is a provocative kind of uh, attention-getting device. So here's a different image. Of what I think might be a little bit more accurate is that instead of having one hill at God at the top, it's that we have different paths, and they're going to different destinations. And that the question is, is what path are you going to choose? Now, there is this philosopher named John Hick, and I don't want to get too deep into this, but I want to make you aware that there is a rebuttal to what I'm saying. And so I want you to be aware of what this rebuttal is. Um, There's a philosopher named John Hick. Uh, He has kind of a philosophical uh, rebuttal to this idea. And he says the differences between the world's religions may be attributed to humanity's inability to grasp the infinite reality of God. So in other words, we are finite creatures. This God is infinite. And maybe we're not really um, understanding who this god is because we are finite and he is infinite. So our minds are inadequate to understand God. So we need all of these religions to kind of help fill in the big picture of who God is. So he would say he would say that all of these religions are showing us something different about that God. And that we need all of them. And so people encounter the same divine reality differently because they're differing historical and cultural biases and perceptions. In other words, if you're born into Hinduism or you're born into Islam or you're born into Buddhism or you're born into Christianity, then you just grow up that way and that's all you ever experience. You're kind of experiencing like this part of God, like a little slice of the pie. And then if you're a Hindu, you have a different slice of God that you're experiencing and he this which was right and which was wrong. They're all right in their own way. So he has this very famous analogy called the elephant analogy. And so imagine that you're a blind man or a blind woman and you're you're feeling an elephant. And this guy over here, he's just feeling the tail. He says, God is like a snake. He's he's very thin. And and then this guy says, No, 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 God is very big. He's feeling the middle. He says, God is very tough and, and kind of just very large. And then this guy says, no, he's, he's very pliable. You know, he's, he's pliable, right? He feels the trunk. So you see they're experiencing three different parts of the elephant differently. And they all have it, but it's all the same elephant. And so the elephant is the divine, And we need all of these different experiences of God to get the fullest picture of who the divine really, what he is truly like. So you might run into somebody who's a more sophisticated unbeliever and has maybe taken a religion class at the junior college and this is what they're gonna be taught. The problem that I see with the elephant analogy is that it doesn't help me resolve number one which was the exclusivity statements of Jesus. It has to redefine the ultimate reality in such a way that I have to do away with all of the exclusive statements of Jesus in order to be in touch with that divine. Now, Jesus could be totally wrong. But they both can't be right. So this is why we've been having these conversations all year. Well, how do I know Christianity is true? How do I know that Jesus is really the Messiah? That's a different question. But Jesus' exclusivity statements, in my opinion, um, are a big problem for the elephant. Okay, number three is that the third point I'm making is that all religions do contain some truth. Now, this is a point that I don't think Christians really often understand or have reflected on. So I want to uh, spend a moment on this. And that is um, my friend Ken Samples, if you're reading through his book with the class, um, this is a very important point that he makes. And he's been a professor of world religions at a number of junior colleges in the area. And um, I think that this is a very thoughtful point, is that all religions are not 100% wrong. We ought not even to expect other religions to be 100% wrong. We're just saying that um, they're not accurate ways to God, but there is some truth in them. So this is is an important point, and I want to just briefly make this case. First is that God has revealed himself through all creation. Do you know this? Yes, Yes, from Romans 1. It says, The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress... The truth by their wickedness, since what they may what may be known about God is what plain. 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 So you might want to circle the word plain. It's not obscure. It's not hard to understand. It is plain to them now, because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, His eternal power and divine nature, have been what clearly, clearly seen. seen. So every, this sort of answers begins to answer Oprah's concern. Well, what about, this is what we call the, what about the guy in the jungles of Africa, objection. And he's never heard the name of Jesus. Well, this begins to answer that concern, is that all people everywhere have access to creation. And they all can discern something about the creator by observing the creation. So there's this idea that God has made something plain to all people in all times and all places. And that they have some knowledge of God. Um, His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen being understood from what has been made so that people are what? Without excuse. So this tells me that God judges according to the revelation that that person has. We in America have an amazing amount of revelation. You can go into a hotel and there's a Bible. You can go almost anywhere and find a Christian. You can go in Barnes & Noble and buy a Bible. Okay, This is not some oppressed country where we don't have access to revelation. But in those places where there's only what we call general revelation or revelation from creation... God has made, hasn't left people with nothing. He's given them some information about themselves. Uh, Acts 14 says something similar. He has not left himself without testimony. He has shown kindness by giving you rain from heaven and crops in their seasons. He provides you with plenty of food and fills your hearts with joy. And he says this, Peter says this to a group of unbelievers. And so that even... God's love and kindness can be discerned from creation and how he has set things up for us. We can discern some things. So that's our first point is God has revealed himself through creation. Secondly, general revelation is available to everyone. Everyone has basic knowledge about the one true God that has been clearly revealed to all people in all times and all places. This is a very important point. Uh, Psalm 19 says this. The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the works of his hands. I find this verse very fascinating. Day after day, they what? Pour forth, forth speech. They're saying something to us, they're communicating something to us. Night after night, they reveal what? Knowledge. Knowledge. Well, that's interesting. They have no speech. In other words, they don't use language like we have. They don't use words, and there's no sound from them. Yet, their voice goes out into all the world, their words to the ends of the world. It's a very fascinating reflection on general revelation. Genesis 1 says this, Then God said, Let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the sky, the livestock and the wild animals, and over all the creatures. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. So all humans are created in the image of God. Now, the Buddhist version of this is there's a spark of the divine in all of us. And that's not the Christian version. The Christian version says we are created in the image of God. And that we are a reflection of him somehow. And we've been appointed to rule and reign over the earth. And that's not just Christians, that's everybody. Someday I'd like to do a teaching series on just that verse on all the implications of what it means to be created in the image of God. I think it is an extremely powerful concept. Number three is that sin and Satan produce distortion. Humanity's fallen sinful condition has impaired our belief forming faculties resulting in moral and spiritual distortion. This is so important because we're creating the image of God. We've had access to the revelation. But what's wrong with us? Why do we run around and invent religions? Yes, in <laughs> exactly. Is that even though we have the image of God in all of us, Romans 1, I think, makes the clearest statement. It says, for although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him. But their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and they exchanged the glory of immortal God for what? Images. Images. Made to look like a mortal human being or birds and animals and reptiles. So another way of saying this is they fell into sin and they created their own religion. They created their own worship system. And therefore... God gave them over to their sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie and they worshiped and served created things rather than the creator who is forever praised. So the two two results of sin is that we invent our own religion and we invent our own morality according to Romans 1. So we all have this revelation. We all see the creation and we know something about the creator. We've all been created in the image of God, but something has gone dreadfully wrong in us. And we look for things to worship other than the creator. And we want to invent our own morality. Is that not like a better summary of our, cult, our current cultural condition? Yeah. A false worship and inventing our own morality. And then I think what's really helpful is 1st Corinthians 10. It talks about idolatry. And it really talks about it links idolatry, which I would call a false religion, a counterfeit religion, with demons. And it says you cannot participate in the Lord's supper, which is animated by the Holy Spirit, and partake of the cup of demons, which is idolatry. It's Holy Spirit or demons. Which path are you in? This is a very hard teaching of of Scripture, but I think it, it is a very important one to understand. So I think that there is truth in other religions. It's just the only way you know that truth is when you compare it to Christianity. And that's where the revelation comes in. But I should expect, because all humans everywhere have access to revelation, information about God, They're all created in the image of God. There should be information in other religions that would be similar to what we believe, but that because of sin, there's distortion. Does that make sense? Yeah, and that then we know what those distortions are when we compare them with the Bible. Okay, number four, is Jesus alone judges who is and who is not saved? Jesus alone has the authority to judge right? The Father has given the Son the authority to judge, not us. God has not appointed you to be a judge of someone else's eternity. You don't know that person's heart. So when people ask me, like, well, you know, my nephew, he prayed a prayer at VBS when he was 10 years old, and then he got baptized, and then he lapsed in his faith, and today he's an atheist. Is he still saved? My only answer that I can possibly give to that is I'm not a judge. That's not my job. I don't know the state of his heart. I don't know anything about the future state of his heart. I don't know anything about that. And I'm not going to stand here and say, well, of course, because he said a magical prayer when he was 10 years old. Everything's cool. I don't know that either. So only Jesus can judge people's hearts. So get out of the judging business. When people come up to you and say, like, well, do you think I'm saved? You know, I did this and I did that. Just say, that's not my job. I don't know. I don't know the content of your heart. So that is a really easy answer when someone in your oikos is trying to back you into this awkward corner of appointing you their judge. Just say, that's not my job. That's between you and Jesus. You guys will work that out on the last day. If you'd like to be sure, that's a different conversation, right? but I am not your judge. Only Jesus has the authority to judge. It says in Matthew, uh, when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, he will sit on his glorious throne and all the nations will be gathered before him. Now this is fascinating. It says all the nations. And he will separate them. As a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats and he will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. Jesus alone is the judge. There's this funny meme that I see on the internet sometimes because people always say, like, you can't judge me. Only Jesus can judge me. And I'm thinking, I'm not sure you understand what that means. That's really not, like, a comforting thought. You know, when someone's in sin and they'll just say, well, you just can't judge me. It's like, that's cool, but someday Jesus will. And it's like, you know, people be like, only God can judge me. And I'd be like... That should scare you. <laughs> right? So it's just a funny meme. This one always makes me laugh. It's like, that should sort of scare you. Jesus is your judge. So earlier, Yolanda, you asked about universalism. Universalism is sort of an outcome of religious pluralism. And you know, an inference. And this is you know, this is a reflection on on what we might call the horror of the consequence of rejecting the mercy of God. It's really almost too much for us to contemplate sometimes, isn't it? It's hard for us to to think about people that we love being apart from Christ. Is that not a hard meditation? And there is a certain discomfort that we have with that emotionally because we want to know, is this person that I love, what is their eternal destination going to be? And yet God... Jesus says, that's not your concern. That's not your business to know that. That's my business. And But the horror of this consequence has led some to speculate that every creature would be ultimately reconciled to God. And this is the concept of universalism that you were asking about earlier. That eventually all will be saved. And the idea that all creatures with free choice including angels and demons and humans, will share in the grace of salvation is called universalism. And really what this is is like on a spectrum of beliefs It's what I call an error of charity. It's, it's an outcome of our, our, I think, a wrong meditation about the nature of the love of God. But universalism was actually a very ancient heresy. It wasn't invented in the 20th century. Remember what I've been hammering all year in this class. There are no new heresies. There are just old heresies dressed up in space suits. Okay? Universalism is a very old heresy. It was actually condemned at the the Council of Constantinople in 543. So there's nothing new under the sun here. So when Rob Bell comes out with a book and says, you know, love wins in the end and everyone's going to heaven, and God is a God of love, and he would never send people to hell. Well, this is actually, remember how we've been talking all year about the circle of orthodoxy, what's inside the circle, what's outside. Universalism was condemned outside the circle 1500 years ago, so there's really nothing new there. It does show up on Oprah and in certain progressive evangelical churches. Number five is that Christianity is actually radically inclusive. The invitation to salvation is made to all people in all times and all places. Jesus says, everyone can come. That's part of what he did on the cross. It wasn't just for Jews. It was for everyone. For God so loved the world. And I think that what that means in context is for God so loved both Jews and Gentiles. He loved everybody. And he made a way for them to come to him, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. Colossians 3 says, For here there is no Greek or Jew, circumcised, uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave-free, but Christ is all and in all. And that's what is amazing about Christianity, is that we are not a cultural religion, right? Right? We don't, we don't hail from a certain part of the world like other world religions. We are a full, international, and inclusive, and diverse religion because we say it does, God doesn't care if, what your ethnic background is. He doesn't care what your race is. He doesn't care where you live geographically. All are welcome because all are sinners. And no matter where you live, we all have the same problem. So in that sense, Christianity is actually radically inclusive. You don't have to be born into it. Thank God. I know, right? (laughs) right. For those of us who are converts as adults, we praise God every day for that. So I hope that this helps to answer this question of, is Jesus the only way? And I leave you with this, is that the thing about truth is that it doesn't really care about opinion. Have you ever noticed that? You know, uh, if I say two plus two is four, it doesn't really matter what your opinion is about that. It just is what it is. If I have a flask here of some dangerous chemicals, and I say, you know, I feel like I want to drink this. That flask of dangerous chemicals doesn't care about my feelings. If I drink that, I might be harmed. I might be dead. See, this is the uncomfortable nature of truth. And what we are making is the audacious claim that Christianity is actually true. It's sort of like in the same category of knowledge as a math problem or science. And that's why we've spent so much time this year talking about the question, how do we know Christianity is true? Not how do I know that Christianity brings meaning to my life. It might bring meaning to my life, and that's awesome. But that's not how I know it's true. That's a different question entirely. Okay? Father, we just ask today that you would give us grace in how we talk to people. Um, We're not under any compulsion to be other people's Holy Spirit. We can be a voice for truth, but we know that ultimately it's your job to persuade. And in this discussion, Lord, help us to um, be firm and grounded in what we believe and and to be clear about what your word is teaching, but to communicate it in a way that um, entices people to, to draw near to you and that we would not create additional boundaries and additional obstacles by our pride, and our arrogance but rather we would create um, we would be a pathway or an invitation to you pointing people to you and what you have for them in Jesus mighty name Amen, amen.